A Parkland school resource officer faces an unprecedented trial. Soccer's goat, Messi, is coming to Miami, and battered Haiti needs our help more than ever. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll examine the trial of Scott Peterson. The former Broward County Sheriff's deputy is accused of failing to act during the 2018 Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School massacre. He's thought to be the country's first school resource officer charged with felony child neglect. We'll also discuss Argentine soccer legend Lionel Messi's exciting decision to come to play for Inter Miami. And we'll look at the new spate of disasters pummeling Haiti and how we can help. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Critics call him the coward of Broward. He insists he did everything possible under the circumstances. Neither assertion is that simple. And this week, a trial got underway in the Broward County Courthouse to determine what is the truth behind Scott Peterson's actions or, as prosecutors charge, his gross inaction on February 14, 2018. That day, a gunman murdered 17 people, mostly students, and injured 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Peterson, then a Broward County Sheriff's deputy, was the school resource officer there, and he was the first armed authority who could have engaged the shooter. But he didn't. And now he's charged with felony child neglect for failing to protect at least seven of the students killed. This is believed to be the first time a school resource officer is being tried like this. Peterson's conviction or acquittal will likely influence similar cases, including the widely condemned inaction of police officers during last year's mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, which killed 19 children and two adults. What are your thoughts about this unprecedented trial? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. WLRN Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III is covering the Peterson trial and joins me now. How are you, Gerard? Well, thanks, Tim. As I mentioned, Peterson is charged in the deaths of seven of the Parkland victims. Why is this case focused on those seven? That boils down just to uh, the facts of the case and what went down on that day. Um, When the gunshots started going off and Peterson and another school monitor uh, went to where they thought they heard the gunshots from. Um, When you tie it to the time of the shooting and the timeline of the shooting, the shooter was already uh, moving from the first floor where he killed uh, 10 or I'm sorry, he killed a number of students. Um, So he's only charged for the neglect of the students that were killed on the third floor because of when he got to the building. And we're also talking about three misdemeanor charges involving the adult victims, right? Right. Those were the teachers and staff that were killed or injured on the third floor. Right. Now, if Peterson is convicted, Gerard, what is he facing? Well, Peterson's 60 years old now, and he's facing, if convicted of all of the charges, um, just over 90 years in prison. So uh, 
a life sentence, basically, for him. Right. And also loss of a pension. Right. He'd be losing out on the pension. I mean, he was a school resource officer, uh, not just at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, but at other schools for more than 30 years. So he'd be missing. He'd, he'd be out of his uh, pension as a police officer. Now, he retired after the shooting, but was fired retroactively. Right. Does that have any bearing whatsoever in, you know, in, in the case? It hasn't been brought up. Um, what has been brought up is that his boss at the time, uh, former Broward Sheriff Scott Israel, uh, you know, in the defense's words, has used him as a scapegoat. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of attention on the actions of Scott Israel uh, coming from the defense in terms of how he treated Peterson after the shooting. Right. And and we'll be getting to that, definitely. Now, in your reporting from the trial so far, Gerard, you point out that Peterson's attorneys are emphasizing that the villain here was not Peterson, but the shooter, and that Peterson simply followed procedure. How, For, for starters, how did the victims' families react to that argument during opening statements? Well, a few of them were there. Um, and, you know, there were some audible scoffs during the uh you know 45 minute or so opening state or opening arguments from peterson's lawyers uh one parent in particular tony montalto whose daughter gina was killed uh you know shook his head at, at some of the things that peterson's defense lawyers were saying things like you know uh, that peterson's actions were heroic or he did exactly what he was supposed to do mm -hmm. um so you know th these parents again, just months ago, were in their eyes, in their words, failed by the justice system for not putting the shooter to death. And here again, they have to go through this trial and relive so much of the same evidence um, in the courtroom, in the same exact courtroom that the uh, the other trial had happened. In. That, that's a very good point. Thanks. Prosecutors, on the other hand, are stressing that Peterson was the school's quote, lead security, and therefore had a legal obligation to follow his training, right? I mean, but does Florida law actually back them up on that? Or do they have a really high legal bar to meet in this trial? They have a really high legal bar, just like you said. Um, they are going to have to prove a few things. And the first is that Peterson had a responsibility to take care of those children. Uh, there's a statute, uh, you know, was he the caretaker? And that uh, the judge has left for the lawyers to convince the jury on. Uh -huh. Was first thing is is was Peterson legally obligated to take care of these children to protect these children? And then they'll have to decide, you know, with all the things going on in that moment, was Peterson aware that there was a shooting? Was he aware then? that it was inside the building and not outside was he aware that it was only one shooter and um it kind of goes on from there right but do le do legal experts think that the actual law spells out what he should have done and what school resource officer training says he should have done the judge has left that up to the jury i mean right. there's uh you know there's training that these school resource officers go through but there's nothing spelled out concretely in law. And that's one of the reasons this trial is being watched so closely yeah. and being kind of uh, billed is very consequential to what the duty of a police officer, specifically a school resource officer, 
is. Mm-hmm. Now, have, have legal legal experts hinted to you which argument they think will be stronger with the jury? The the argument Peterson's defense is making that you know he, he 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 was himself a victim of circumstance, or the argument that prosecution is making that he had a legal obligation. Which which do you think uh, legal experts feel the the jury is going to you know uh, be more accepting of? Just as in the case of the shooter, the prosecutor, the prosecutors are going to have the tougher time. Um, they're going to have to, like I said earlier, climb this hill of first and foremost, did Scott Peterson have to take care of these children, yeah. which we've seen in other cases that police aren't exactly always given that role. Yeah. And then they're going to have to decide from what the defense says they have 22 witnesses that say they were also confused as to where the shots were coming from. Were they inside? Were they outside? Where there's just one. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other interesting kind of timeline fact is this was after the the Vegas shooting where um, someone was not on the concert grounds where the shooting happened, but rather in a sniper uh, position in a building far away. Yeah. So that they say it was going through Scott Peterson's head. Right. That's one of the other lines of defense that you point out that Peterson's attorneys are, are, are making. Uh, that, you know, his assertion that he thought he heard shots coming from outside the school from what could have been a sniper. Um, again, do, do legal experts feel that that kind of argument bears any weight, you know, in, in terms of evidence brought in this trial? Well, even in just the first couple of days of the prosecutors calling witnesses they've called um you know three or four other security officers or school um security that were on the scene and only one of them has said yes for sure the i knew that the shots were coming from inside that building other ones um i'm thinking of one who was an off-duty police officer he was kind of uh taking care of the baseball field at the time he had run over and but he said he also couldn't tell exactly where the shots were coming from until he talked to a student who was running out of that 1200 building. Uh-huh. Now, you know, they played the videos similar to the, the almost the exact same ones they played during the trial of the shooter, where you hear the gunshots going off and you hear the fire alarm going off, and it's insanely loud. Um, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not in person, Peterson knew where those were coming from, how many people were shooting. That's yeah. all so going to have to be There's decided. sort of a fog of war defense being made here, obviously. Right. Another line of defense for Peterson seems to directly confront the prosecution's argument that he abandoned his training. I mean, will they argue that school resource officer training was faulty under then Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel, who you mentioned earlier, who was removed from office after Park, the Parkland massacre, partly because the department's training was deemed to be lax. During their opening arguments, prosecutors didn't bring up the training. They brought up that after Columbine, the methodology for school resource officers and for cops in general to attack a, a mass shooter changed from forming a perimeter, wait for the SWAT team to show up, to rush the shooter every second counts do what you know do what you can to stop the shooter um the defense did not bring up the training under scott israel what they did bring up under scott israel is how he used peterson in their words again as a scapegoat Uh um so training will definitely be part 
of the prosecution's argument. And I'm not sure how much the defense will bring up the training other than in cross-examination. That's interesting. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing the Scott Peterson trial for his alleged inaction during the 2018 Parkland shooting. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Gerard, let's look at the larger picture involved in this trial. As, as we mentioned, this is thought to be the first time a school resource officer has been tried for this kind of criminal neglect. Are legal experts themselves surprised that he's on trial like this? Surprised is a strong word. Um, you know, as we saw after the shooting and then after the trial for the shooter, there is a lot of political momentum tied to this shooting. So I think that's going to be a huge part of the defense is that Peterson is on trial because he's being blamed for something that the shooter did. Um, even the, the closing lines of the defense's argument was there are so many people responsible for this shooting that aren't charged. Um, you know, there's a larger conversation to be had about the gun culture in the state, the gun laws that allowed Cruz uh, to purchase a gun. And then all of, of course, as we learned in the trial of the shooter, all of the times that behavioral officials from the school and from outside sources could have intervened, but didn't. Right. No, all good points. And but what do they say, again, the legal experts you've spoken with, what, what do they say about the national ramifications of this trial's outcome, whether it's an acquittal or a conviction, especially how it could influence whether prosecutors go after the officers who waited so long to confront the shooter in last year's Uvalde Elementary School massacre? Right. You know, they say that... Um, I'll give a, a scenario if, if, if Peterson gets found guilty, that it's going to shake up policing around the country. You know, it may force people to leave policing in general or not go into the field because of the liability and the expectation that despite only having a handgun, you will have to run in there uh, into a school building, into a mall, into a concert venue and try and confront the shooter or you will be found you could possibly be found guilty of negligence and be charged, you know, almost adjacent to all of the murders that happen. Right. And 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 uh, again, looking at, at, at instances like the Uvalde massacre, I mean, there we're talking about an entire almost SWAT force of officers, not just not just the SRO. Right. And, and you know, again, Uvalde is similar to Parkland in the sense that seeing a lot of political action around the shooting, you know, the public opinion of Peterson is probably the worst involved in the shooting, second only to the shooter. Um, like you said, I mean, parents were tweeting out, you know, the, the, the coward of Broward. And that's the whole element of this trial is that basically the jury is deciding whether Peterson acted cowardly or heroically. Um, right. So whether or not the Uvalde officers will see charges may hinge on this trial. Uh, during the sh After the shooter's trial, we saw those types of 
uh, consequences throughout the country and other trials of mass shooters where uh, prosecutors did not push for the death penalty in some of them, mm -hmm. possibly because they watched this trial and saw how hard it was to obtain. We have Michael from Lauderdale by the Sea. Uh, he's worked in the education system for 30 years, and he has some thoughts about this uh, dilemma. Michael, you're on the air. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you for taking my call. In my mind, since the procedure was changed in the aftermath, I think the people who initiated the procedure which practiced avoidance should be the ones investigated. You're talking, you're talking about uh, the, the, the original training that SROs like, like Peterson got. Yes. I'd like to know what inane individual or group of people suggested such training. Yeah, well, this, again, this goes back to the questions that were raised after Columbine, you know, a generation ago. Exactly. A generation ago. That was in the 90s. Right. You would think that there would be some sense of proper revision by this point. Right. But and I'll tell you one thing. It's a real deterrent. Being a former teacher, this is one of the things that's being spoken about around the campfire. Teachers are very reluctant to go into the profession because of this. Right. But again, but Michael, let me ask you the question, the point that Gerard brought up earlier. As a teacher, though, do you think, you know, when you're talking about an SRO who's just got a handgun on him and he's facing a powerful weapon like an AR-15, is it realistic for us to expect school resource officers to be the first to heroically confront these killers? And again, I'm asking you as a teacher. Yes. If they are not expected to do so, then why are they there in the first place? Okay. Well, Gerard, uh, is there anything that we else that we should know about this trial that you think is important before we uh, say goodbye to you here? I think it's important in all of this uh, to remember and to, to take hold of um, how much this shooting has affected not just the local community, the state, the country, uh, but everybody involved. I mean, it, it gets lost as we talk about policy and procedure that, again, even today, many of the same students who were injured, who testified during the trial for the shooter, testified today. Um, yesterday, a student who was injured in the shooting, you know, he, he was fighting back tears as he testified and, and eventually, you know, yeah. broke down a little bit. You know, these trials, as they drag on, um, you know, politically motivated or not, they're affecting people again and again and here we are four years on right five years on excuse me um putting former students you know some of them that are 20 years old right. um who have, who have lived through the worst day of their lives um making them watch videos again making them relive it again right and uh it, it's just tough and then obviously it's, it's, the parents who are sitting there in the courtroom no all very good community factors to take into account thanks for that gerard gerard albert the third is wlrn's broward county reporter gerard thanks as always of course, thank you. Still to come, Messi is coming to Miami. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. In the sport of soccer, Lionel Messi of Argentina is arguably the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And this week, the legend announced he's coming to play for our Major League Soccer team, Inter-Miami. 
It was quite possibly the biggest sporting news to ever hit South Florida, and within a day, tickets for Inter-Miami's remaining games this season, which ends in October, were sold out. Not bad for a team that right now has the third-worst record in the league. Messi is expected to take the field here next month, or more precisely in Fort Lauderdale, where Inter-Miami plays until a stadium can be built in Miami. But a big question hanging over his arrival will be, can he finally make Miami an enthusiastic, as enthusiastic about its professional soccer as it is about the Dolphins, the Heat, the Marlins, and Panthers? History suggests it will be a challenge, despite the fact that Miami is a Latino-majority city Pro soccer teams here have usually failed amid fan indifference. Are you excited about Messi's historic move to Miami? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio to discuss Miami Messi mania is Christopher Moramarco, co-founder of Vice City 1896, which is an inter-Miami fan support group and WLRN digital editor and resident soccer expert, Mateo Sanchez. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello there. Chris, let me start with you. How excited are Inter-Miami fans about this messy moment? Static. (laughs) Why? Think about it. Best player in the world ends up in a city like Miami. It's a big deal for for everyone. I think not just uh, Miami people, but the country, the league. I think it's going to be revolutionary, just like when David Beckham uh, arrived at LA Galaxy. For you as a soccer fan here in Miami, what's the most exciting part? I think it's just uh, being able to show the world what it's like being a soccer fan in South Florida. We've been waiting 20 years for a football team. Uh, you know, Having Inter-Miami arrive changed everything for us. It, it brought the community together. We have every culture here. And we celebrate that above everything. You know, we want to instill the folklore, the passion that Latin Americans predominantly uh, enjoy of the sport, which is, you know, how we how we live the sport but is me, what we want to tell the world. But let me ask you, Chris, diehard Inter-Miami fans like you are still considered a relatively small group here. And professional soccer does not have a great track record in Miami, as you know. You just said we've been waiting 20 years for a new team. So will Messi's arrival finally make Miami a soccer town? Not just a place where soccer fans follow powerhouse European clubs like Barcelona or iconic national teams like Brazil, but where they enthusiastically support their own major league soccer club. We hope so. I think, you know, football, soccer has been played here in South Florida. I've been here since 91. Soccer has been here. I think we needed uh, we needed some icons to come and represent the city, something that we hadn't had. The club spoke of that. We knew that we were going to get some international talent. I think this really sets the presence for, for what it should be like. Mm-hmm. Matt, for our listeners who aren't soccer enthusiasts, what makes Messi the greatest player of his generation in your mind? Well, uh, how long do we have? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his stats are off the charts, you know. He's been named the best in the world seven times. He's won multiple titles in Europe. He's scored hundreds of goals and in a glittering career of almost 20 years already at the very highest level. Mm -hmm. You know, that's almost unheard of. But what really makes him stand out is how he plays the game. You know, I've been lucky enough to see him play for Barcelona, for Argentina in the World Cup. And when he gets the ball, it's a special feeling. The stadium holds its breath. You can see it. You can feel it. 
the way he carries the ball, the way he attacks players, the way he distributes the ball. You know, he's relentlessly positive, always taking on players, always trying to find the perfect pass for someone else to score. Yeah, not just a great striker, but as you and I were discussing earlier, perhaps he brings more of a playmaker to dimension to, to, to the game than other great stars of the past like Pele and and Maradona have. Is, is that a, an accurate assessment? Well, that's right, particularly for the MLS as well. Some of the big names, are, names I've come across have often been strikers, whereas Messi has scored a record number of goals. He scores spectacular goals, great free kicks, but oh, he, he's yeah. a classic number 10. Yeah. He can find that pass. He can dribble players like almost nobody else in the history of the sport, you know? And he's also very driven. He's very focused. He's very determined. He's dedicated to the game. And he's also quite humble as well, which is difficult to find in, in big sports stars. So he might bring a lot to the community in that sense as well. Mm -hmm. Now, and we should say, when you say a classic number 10, we should explain to our listeners that a number 10 <laughs> is usually the, you know, the great striker, right? Well, the number 10 is the guy who is in the middle of the field yeah. and gets the ball, distributes it, sets up other players, but also scores goals himself. It's the magical number in, in, in football and soccer. Right. Say uh, the equivalent of a quarterback. Exactly. There you Thank, go. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. Thanks for putting that in a way, Dolphins fans. <laughs> we'll, we'll understand. We've got uh, Mike on the line from Pembroke Pines, and he feels that Messi will make a difference, but it's a team, not just a one-man band. What do you mean by that, Mike? And welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Oh, thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, basically, we see other great players like uh, Pirlo going, you know, coming down and Terry Henry coming down, but the thing is, it's not a one-man show, right? You need a defense, you need, uh, you need a midfield, and obviously you need a forward. And you got Messi for that. One thing I've noticed as a South Florida fan, most of the South Florida fans tend to be players. I mean, not professional players, but players of the game, whether it's hobbyists or former uh, professional players. Right. And they also tend to watch uh, the European-style soccer, right, whether it's Premier League or it's uh, <clears throat> mm -hmm. Serie A or La Liga, right? And they expect maybe not the same caliber, but somewhat, you know, uh, better than what MLS has to offer. Right. Well, that and I don't. I don't think uh, Inter Milan is offering that right. Right. Now. So Messi no. come, might make a difference, but. Eh. Well, th no, thanks for your call, Mike. You bring up a good point, and let, let's get to that, Matt. This isn't the first time a global soccer giant has, has decided to grace our American shores. Uh, Brazilian legend Pelé came to play for New York in the 1970s. English greats like George Best and Wayne Rooney have, have crossed the pond. Matt, how, how did it work out for the U.S. clubs they played for, and, and, and what did it do for the American game? Well, the caller makes a great point. I mean, it, it is a team sport. You know, it's 11 players out on the field. I think that the example of Pele is really interesting. Uh, you know, it was a really sensational move when Pele came to the New York Cosmos in the 70s. And from a marketing point of view, it worked. It raised the league to a new level, raised the Cosmos to a new level. But on the field, it took a couple of years for them to get results. But they did get there once they brought other players around them. I think by the time the Cosmos started winning titles, they had Beckenbauer and a couple of other major players playing alongside him. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the league then folded just a few years after Pelé left. So there is this question of lasting effect. I think the MLS is at a different level than the league was back then, but that is a big question. You know? Right, and just briefly, you've written about the history of pro soccer failures, not just in the U.S., but in Miami. So do you think this time will be different thanks to Messi? 
That's a big question. I think uh, the MLS is set up for success now in a way the, the US League hasn't before. And I think Messi is of a, of a caliber of such a spectacular level that he can make a difference, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Chris of Vice City 1896, what do Inter-Miami fan groups like yours think about the deal that's bringing Messi here? I mean, let's, let's go over some of the particulars. It's apparently a two-year agreement with salary, bonus, and equity in the team valued at more than $125 million. That would make him, by the way, the highest paid athlete in the U.S. There are also sweeteners like, an Apple, like Apple TV revenues. It, is it all worth it for a franchise like Inter-Miami? I think so. Yeah, it's going it, to, you know, the people behind it, uh, David Beckham's partners, are, are very smart business people and they know what they're putting their chips on. I think this is a, a major uh, opportunity, not only for the city, not only for the club, for the league. Uh, as you know, Apple TV, is, Apple's involved, so is uh, Adidas. So I think the, the big brands also understand the opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think all that alignment is, uh, is uh, headed for success. Chris, let me also ask you, it- Inter-Miami goalie Nick Marsman told ESPN today he doesn't, though, think the club is ready for something as big as Messi. He points out, for example, the team is still playing in a temporary and relatively modest venue in Fort Lauderdale until a proper stadium can be built here in Miami. Does he have a point, or is Messi, as I think you inferred earlier, the jolt that Inter-Miami needs to turbocharge all the things that need to happen to take the club to a higher level? I think that's what we needed. We needed something like this to get everybody moving to really understand what that vision was that Beckham set forward and that uh, his partners, Jorge Maz and brother, uh, foresee for South Florida. I think we're seeing it, you know, now having someone like uh, Lionel on the field is going to really bring the attention and understand that this is going to shift, not, you know, not just to attract people, but financially is going to make sense. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about soccer legend Lionel Messi coming to play in Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Chris, let me just stay with you here. For A lot has been made of the fact that Messi turned down a half billion dollars to play in Saudi Arabia to come here. He's 35 now. He's accomplished just about everything a soccer player could in this world, including finally leading Argentina to the World Cup championship last year. Why do you think he opted to play in Miami? You know, uh, in the finals after he won, he uh, looked at the at the stands to his family and he made the gesture like, that's it. You know, I did, that this was it. And he, what he meant by that was like he won everything he needed to win. I think, you know, as a 35-year-old in comparison to his younger years in Europe, the demand, the physical demand, the dieting, the training, the sleeping is very demanding of him. I think he wants to spend more time with his family. Mm-hmm. They vacation here. They live here in, in the summer times. So I think he's paying attention to something else now, which is slowing down a little bit. I know from what we hear is he's very competitive. He's going to want to keep winning. And we're going to see him next Copa America next summer here in the U.S., so I think he just wants a, a different pace of life for himself, and he knows that demand uh, f- uh, soccer-wise on the pitch is going to shift for him, allowing him to, to you know settle in a little bit more into this chapter of his life. Do you think the fact that he made that lifestyle choice will endear him even more to fans here, especially to fans who are Latino expats like him? 
Yeah, I mean, he's a, a, a man of, of, of his people. You see him go, going back to Rosario, where he's from, and, you know, he shows up driving his own car, uh, you know, taking photos with people at gas stations. I don't think he's going to change. He's He's been that guy, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it says a lot about him, you know. But, Matt, again, is two years here really enough, not just to take Inter-Miami to a higher level, but to take Miami soccer culture to a higher level? I mean, the level that pro franchises here, like the Dolphins, as I mentioned before, enjoy. I mean, once Messi exits, do soccer fans here forget about Inter-Miami then again and go, and go back to wearing Real Madrid jerseys around town? <laughs> That's a big question, isn't it? Um, I think we would obviously love to see it take root in the community. It's a very special situation we have here in Miami where you have real passionate soccer fans but they, like the fans of other sports in the U.S., I think are quite picky, you know. The big sports in the U.S., you can watch them week in, week out, played at the highest level, the best basketball players in the world, the best American football players in the world play. But the MLS is at a different standard. So it is, you need a long, you would probably need to elevate the standard of the league for it really to take root. And maybe that's a big step in that direction. But I think if Inter Miami can build a team around him and create a project around him and bring the other players that it needs to, to succeed, other players who want to play next to him then they can create something that can last beyond him leaving but it's a tough one Uh, i'll 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 add this you know us as supporters we knew that uh depending on results was a was not realistic we knew that we needed to build the culture and the passion for the sport we make uh, a party out of it ultimately we know that that's what's going to last and i think that's something that other franchises in south florida don't have if you haven't been to an inter miami game Look at the North Stand and look what we're doing. We want to uh, infuse and really uh, set forth the the sort of passion and the way we live the game. I think that that's going to last. And then what happens on the pitch, the decisions they make buying players, how they build this up, that's up to the club to decide. But Mm -hmm. we're doing our part. Well, let's end our discussion here with Cindy here in Miami. She's worried that if Messi comes, he'll have to carry the team. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Uh, Great. I'm a season ticket holder since day one. Uh, very excited that Messi is coming. Um, just worried about or wondering, are other people coming? I've Obviously, we've heard rumors about Sergio Busquets, heard rumors about Jordi Alba. I just read this morning Luis Suarez says he's not coming. <laughs> just mm-hmm. wondering... Um, no, who you, else is coming if we know of anybody else coming? No, Cindy, you make a great point. I mean, even the Chicago Bulls had had to build a high-caliber team around Michael Jordan, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, right. No, great, great point. But unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. And uh, I want to thank both Mateo Sanchez, WLRN's digital editor, and Christopher Moramarco. He's with the Inter-Miami fan support group Vice City 1896. Thank you both, gentlemen. I really appreciated it. Awesome. See you at the field. Still to come, Miami can't catch a break, but we can still help. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. If you want to keep up with Haiti these days, the Bible might be a better source than the newspaper because, frankly, the country seems to get hit by one plague after another. 
Last weekend, Haiti saw torrential rains, flooding, and landslides that killed more than 50 people and forced tens of thousands from their homes. Then, Tuesday morning, the same region that was battered by the deluge was struck by a magnitude 5.5 earthquake that killed at least four people. The most affected zone, Haiti's southwest peninsula, is also one of the hardest for relief aid to get to, especially since the violent gangs that control so much of the country are out to hijack whatever moves into that area. Yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris said during a visit to the Bahamas that the U.S. will spend an additional $54 million in Haiti to help it recover from all these natural and criminal calamities. She also repeated the Biden administration's call for a multinational force to stabilize the country. What is the answer to Haiti's crisis or crises? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me in the studio to help answer that question is Yvonne Morisseau, who is originally from the area hardest hit by Haiti's disasters this week. He's a community advocacy liaison for Miami-Dade County, and he chairs the nonprofit Haitian American Emergency Relief Committee. Yvonne, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me, Tim. We're, of course, very sorry about the misfortune that's, that's hit your home region of Haiti. Um, your last name, Morisot, is actually the name of your hometown, correct? Correct. Tell us a little bit about that part of Haiti. That part of Haiti is uh, the second district of uh, Maurice, uh, Lazile, which is the commune in the uh, department of Nibs, which is on the south, south uh, side of Haiti. Right. Um, we are placed in the mountain. And now we have access, uh, vehicular access to Moiso at this time. Mm-hmm. But, but has, has traditionally been considered a, a rather remote section of Haiti, no? It is still a remote section of Haiti because, mm-hmm. you know, if you have to walk from a place called Cafu Vigil, it would take you about like five hours to get on up there, uh, between two to five hours to get up there. It depends on who's working and uh, how strong are you right. in walking. So. Yvonne, what are you hearing from people on the ground there about how bad the damage has been, both from the flooding and the earthquake, and and, and what they need right now? Well, at this time, you know, uh, on our side, uh, in the commune of Lazil, we, we, we have done our best with uh, the association that we have. We call it ADA, Association pour le Développement de l'Asile. We did our best to assist with the hospital and uh, staff the hospital and also find some resources for it. But at this time, we're looking at uh, uh, the damages and the victims that are coming back, you know, after that earthquake. Remember, wherever we have a hospital, that's where we receive the, the, the people. Some of them are close to another place, to another hospital, another city. But if that has, uh, city doesn't have a clinic or hospital or way to address, they look for the nearest or the, the next uh, hospital. Mm-hmm. So Lazil finds itself uh, one of those places. So, Yvonne, why is it more challenging to get disaster relief into that area of Haiti than than in perhaps other parts of Haiti? Well, now remember, we, we for the past two uh, two three years, we've been fighting. We've been having some issues with the gangs in in Haiti, mostly in Port-au-Prince, and cutting cutting the the west and the south of Haiti, and cutting the north and the south and the west. Haiti, so that means uh, uh, transportation is kind of very is very difficult. So mm-hmm. uh, either you have to pay a lot of money to pass like every every part of those sections where the gangs are established. Okay, so yeah. that's where we have some issues. So right. if you have to bring some 
assistance, some aids or anything to Haiti, you have to really spend a good time and money to strategize on how you're going to be. So is it, is it a case of, you know, even before the gangs became prominent in Haiti, it was hard to get to these areas because of logistics, geography, et cetera. And now the gangs and, and this, essentially the, the criminal toll roads they've set up to get aid out there has, has just compounded the problem? It is compounded. And remember, it's not uh, only now. Remember the last earthquake that we had in, in Haiti 2021. in 2021. We also had the same issues with the gangs. You had to have ask for access to, uh, to bring your resources there, or you have to fly or risk your life with some uh, airplanes, you know, sometimes overweight when they're going from Port-au-Prince to Okai or to anywhere else in the country. Right. And let me ask you then, is that largely why the, these kinds of circumstances that we've just been talking about, is that largely why you helped start the Haitian American Emergency Relief Committee, largely to help train Haitians there to more effectively deliver aid when, when things like the disasters of the past week happen? Well, that is one of the issues because the Haitian American Emergency Relief Committee started after the 2008 crisis in Haiti when the NGOs called for help for Haiti claiming that Haiti is uh, having like a famine and there's no food for people and, and people are going hungry. So we decided to come up together to organize a committee to see how we can bring assistance. And that same committee uh, organization, we found it necessary to train people to uh, protect themselves, to see how they can mitigate and help themselves. In other words, we say, let, let us help Haiti help itself. Right. Now, you, you raise an excellent point that I want to get into here because there is a, a world of controversy when we talk about NGOs in Haiti and, and how uh, the work that they do or try to do there has so often sort of frozen out the Haitians themselves. At least that's been, been the criticism. Um, when we look at what disasters like have happened in Haiti in this past week, is it does that make it all the more important that that um, groups like yours that that actually get Haitians themselves involved in the relief work? Does that make it all the more important? It is important. What I say is that you're looking at us living in the United States and other groups are preparing and the, the, uh, the U.S. Um, government or administrations always say that they're, going, they're bringing help to Haiti. But the thing is that we never look at what we call the culture of the people. What is the culture in, in Haiti? How do you do that? When you start bringing to them, so you bring you you you, you place this uh, this person you think that is in need in a state where they always needs you to feed them, yes. not helping themselves. Mm -hmm. But if you find a way to utilize or to help those organizations that are in your immediate area or your country here, the Haitian on the, the ground, on the ground to help mm -hmm. the other Haitians in the country, I believe that the aid will be better utilized. You know, will reach out to those who are really in need in Haiti. No, no, that that that's that that's a great point that that we just can't make enough. Um, we have. Um, Ed in Aventura, and he feels that unfortunately what's being done isn't uh, going to get the job done. Ed, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you so much, Tim, for taking my call. Um, and I know my time is brief, so I'll be brief. Thank you. Unfortunately, what needs to happen isn't going to happen. Because what I mean by that, without with the insecurity that's happening in the country, until that gets resolved, no one, including myself, my family, my friends, no one's going to go there and no one's going to invest there. You have about 10 to 15 families that essentially 
govern the country. They are the ones who uh, finance the gangs. They are the ones who invested all these guns going to our countries and killing our, ch- our children. So until those guys are prosecuted, arrested, and put in prison, mm-hmm. nothing's going to get done. Ed, are you and unfortunately, re- they're in bed with the government, right. so therefore, really, nothing is going to get done. Ed, That's are you no originally problem. from Haiti yourself? Yes, which, I was born and raised there. Which, um, which, which, part, of, which part of Haiti, if I might ask? Uh, I came from a part uh, on the south side of Port-au-Prince called Carrefour. Uh-huh. But, um, but I've been living in the U.S. for over 30 years now. I'm, I live in, here in Miami for probably 15, 17 years. Okay. Um, I went to school here, etc. So I was born and raised in, in the island. Unfortunately, okay. the problem is the fact that the government is in cahoot with those 10 to 15 families that essentially hold the government hostage, okay. therefore the country hostage, until okay. those guys are prosecuted, nothing's going to get done. Well, thank you very much for your call, Ed. We appreciate it. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the recent disasters in Haiti and how to help. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Yvonne, let's kind of get to the point that, that Ed was making here Um for example, yesterday, as, as I discussed before, Vice President Kamala Harris was in the Bahamas and she pledged an additional $54 million in U.S. aid and investment to Haiti. Is that enough, given all the crises Haiti faces right now? And to Ed's point, is it being directed to the right places and efforts? With all due respect, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's going to help Haiti because we can see one thing that happened. In 2010, we had an earthquake in Haiti. Billions of dollars uh, uh, were dedicated to Haiti, and organi- companies here in Miami-Dade County, I cannot recall or I cannot find any companies here in Miami-Dade County that had received a project to help or rebuild or do anything in Haiti. So therefore, that money is not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the money that they dedicated, like in 2010, every time they say, some of the people are getting rich with it, not Haiti. Well, that brings me to the next point then, and again, uh, touches on a point Ed made. Um, as a Haitian-American yourself, um, you know, she, the vice president also repeated the Biden administration's call for a new multinational force to bring stability and security back to the Haiti, which a lot of people say is necessary because you can't, successfully deliver relief aid. You can't successfully, for example, hold a new election in Haiti that's desperately needed until security and stability is brought back. Do you feel that Haitians and Haitian Americans agree with that idea that the only way to, to accomplish that now is to bring in a new multinational force into the country? What I heard one day is from one U.S. diplomat. They've been ma- making a mistake in Haiti for the past 30 years or over, over 30 years which is to impose elections in Haiti. So elections is not really a good solution for the administration to bring to Haiti because that also generates a lot more oppositions in Haiti, a lot of fights between groups and, and, and other guys. So I don't think it is. But but Yvonne, we're, we're dealing with a situation in Haiti right now where every there, there are no elected officials anymore. There's practically no government that really exists in Haiti. I mean, if, if, if we don't hold, if there is not a, a new election held there, where do we go from there? Well, we don't have a government, but we have people who are governing Haiti. 
their governance is not good, is not right. right. For instance, you have what you call the core group. The core group imposing a lot of things and blocking a lot of uh, policies. And also, not, not too long ago, well, I we should, if, it, I should explain the core group. You're, you're, you're referring to um, uh, foreign diplomats, really, yes. who, who are sort of are believed to be making decisions for, for Haiti right now, and, and including the imposition of, of the current prime minister. Exactly. Okay. Furthermore, you have you, you remember that it is from a tweet from Ellen Lalim, who was a representative of the United Nations, that uh, that presented the, Mr. Ariel Henry as the prime minister of Haiti. So wasn't the public, wasn't the Haitians, was not the Haitian population. So therefore, if we are talking about a elected officials or or a, a president or governor or anyone who's governing Haiti, let's let us look at the international that brought to Haiti this type of situation that we are in now. Well, let's see where the solutions come from. Uh, Yvonne, thank you very much. Yvonne Morisot is a Miami-Dade County Community Advocacy Liaison, and he chairs the Haitian American Emergency Relief Committee. Again, Yvonne, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And finally, on the roundup. We do have something to celebrate in the Caribbean. As I mentioned earlier, Vice President Kamala Harris was in the Bahamas yesterday, and next month that country will celebrate 50 years of independence. Miami's Bahamian community will mark that anniversary this weekend at its annual Goombe Festival in Coconut Grove. The event will take place tomorrow and Sunday on Grand Avenue and will feature live Bahamian music, entertainment, food, and, th and the traditional colorful parade known as the Junkanoo Rush. Our congratulations to the Bahamas and to the Bahamians who were among the first settlers and builders of Miami. They were key to the city's foundation. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bagman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives is the show's technical supervisor. Ariana Otero and Alexa Herrera answer the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. <laughs> <laughs>